And we're continuing our study in the book of John, and we're studying the book of John in light of the reason for why it is written. And just as a review, we did memorize this verse, but it's good for us to look at it from time to time. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so the very words that we're studying in the Gospel of John are words that were written so that as a church, as a body of believers, we might have life together in the name of Jesus. And we've taken a full year, really it's, it's, it's been over a year, that we've been in the Gospel of John. We will finish in 2020, I promise. Uh, John has taken us through the first 11 chapters of his Gospel, and really he's focused the first 11 chapters on the early earthly ministry of Jesus. Some of the miracles that Jesus did, some of the things that Jesus had said about himself. But now in these final chapters, John is he's beginning to draw his gospel to a crescendo. And then its ultimate conclusion. And really, this is, this is slow. What we're studying today is the beginning of the Passion Week. And we're only in John chapter 12. We have a long way to go. And so through the rest of the gospel, what John is doing is he is walking with us slowly, carefully, to that wonderfully perplexing place that is the cross of Calvary. Today in our text, we, we want to look and observe a few different things this morning as a congregation. First, we want to look and see how the schemes of man stand no chance against the purposes of God. We're going to see that clearly in our text today. We want to explore the contrast between what the crowds believe Jesus to be and who Jesus actually was. Contrasts that are going to be uncovered this morning as we read. We're going to discover two pearls of wisdom related to our spiritual growth and development. What are some truths related to how we grow in our faith and grow in our relationship with Jesus? And finally, we will witness the devastating effects of sin on the thinking and the behavior of men who do not know God. If you uh, want to write down the parallel accounts, we're looking at the triumphal entry today in the Gospel of John. And the parallel accounts to this are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17. You might read and study this week. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. And Luke chapter 19, verses 29 to 40. All of the Gospels, all four, include the account that we're going to read of and explore further this morning. Before we open the Word, we're going to be in John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And before we begin, we want to take a moment to pray. John chapter 12, verses 9 to 19. Lord, as a body of Christ, we gather around your Word this morning. And every time we come to your word, Lord, we gather because we know, we anticipate, and we realize that you intend to work because your spirit is active, he is living, he is moving even now in the midst of this assembly, part of our lives, Lord, dwelling in our hearts, he's taking the truth from your word and applying it to our understanding, 
And Father, as we open the Scriptures today, I know that for each person in this room, including myself, that there is intention for how we are to grow and what we are to learn as we study together. And so, Father, we pray that as we gather, as we study, You would be honored, You would be glorified, Your Spirit would be working to open our minds to understand and our hearts to apply the truths in Your Word today. And we'll give You the glory and honor In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 9 to 19 today. John 12, 9 to 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I want to begin by looking at verses 9 to 11 and realizing that in man's mind, many are the plans. A quiet meal with family and friends that we explored last week that Jesus was having in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper begins to grow as word spreads that Jesus has visited Bethany. We remember the crowd that last saw Jesus in Bethany, they had last seen Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Powerful, powerful miracle. However, Now they are not coming based on solely seeing Jesus. They also want to see Lazarus. They want to see Lazarus too. Lazarus was a walking billboard pointing the world at the power of Jesus' ministry. Yet in seeing Lazarus, many who had come were still unable to see Many were coming to see the sign of Jesus' power over life and death, yet as they were coming, they were still blind, unable to see Jesus for who He truly was. The very Word of God is standing in their midst, and the focus of the crowd that has gathered is on the results of Jesus' ministry rather than Jesus Himself. And you know, I often find this, some of you have been places where you have heard somebody share an incredibly powerful testimony. 
And we, and we hear of this a lot when it comes to the sharing of testimony. Sometimes we hear an incredible, powerful testimony, but the reality of what we've heard is that it's focused more on uh, the, the sign and the wonder of how life was before the transformation, rather than really who Jesus was and is in the transformation. And I think that in in some ways we're seeing that even here. The people are more consumed with the results of Jesus' ministry rather than Jesus himself, who he really, really is. Friends, there are many who seek signs and wonders. Jesus warned us about this. Signs and wonders are the flashing lights of Christianity. They're, They're not bad in and of themselves, but there is so much more going on behind them. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So He left them and departed. But, but we don't want to make signs seem terrible because Jesus also says this, it's important to know that there is a level of authority and importance to them. Right? In John chapter 10, which we've previously studied, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe what? The works. Some of these works included the signs and the miracles that Jesus was doing. It's not a bad place to start. It's certainly better than nothing at all. However, our faith, true faith, must be grounded in the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus. Not just the miracles of Jesus. And if it is because of the signs and wonders, if that's the only reason that we've come to Jesus, then we've not yet clearly seen all that there is to see. And what we find and what we'll find in this passage is that there are many who have gathered, even in this large crowd, who still do not truly believe. And isn't it interesting, as you continue through the Passion Week, Here this crowd is gathered. Here they are celebrating victory, Hosanna, Hosanna. And just in a few short days, what are those words going to turn into? Crucify, crucify. Jesus would weep openly over the city of Jerusalem for its people had misunderstood and spurned their Messiah. Look at what he says in Matthew's account. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. We're not willing. And we can clearly see their unwillingness revealed in verses 10 and 11. Take a look down at verses 10 and 11 in their text. Look at these people who are making plans. Starting in verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. What's their thought? If we put to death the living miracle, we discredit the living miracle worker. Kill the results and the effects of Jesus' ministry and then kill Jesus. And His influence will be done. These are Israel's spiritual leaders, church. 
This isn't some band of renegades and rebels, some group of outsiders that were seeking to do this. These were the very people who were tasked with the spiritual growth and maturity and discipleship of the nation of Israel. It's an object lesson on the devastating effects of sin on our attitudes, on our thinking, and on our behavior. Their hatred of Jesus had led them to this place. Sin, friends, sin is all-encompassing. All-encompassing. And just as some of the disciples were indignant, what we saw last week, remember in the response to Mary, we saw some of the disciples indignant to what she had did in anointing Jesus. So too were the chief priests and the Pharisees indignant at the effects and the results of Jesus' ministry. They were jealous because Jesus was creating a following, a buzz, something that they had not been able to do probably for years. Their hatred of Jesus fueled these terrible plans and, and revealed the true inclination of their hearts. These men, these chief priests and Pharisees, they were quite possibly the people that Jeremiah had in mind in his prophecy in Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. What kind of shepherds were these men charged with the spiritual leadership of Israel. And isn't it interesting in our text what's happening in verse 11? These men are scheming. They're making plans. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, and they are doing a fabulous job of making plans. And while they're in back rooms having secret meetings and making plans on how to kill Lazarus and kill Jesus, don't you love what's happening? Isn't it neat? What's happening? Many people are going away believing. Here they are trying to discredit the power of Jesus' ministry and trying to discredit Jesus himself. And while they're doing it, more and more people are going away believing. The power of Jesus, friends, it's above, above the schemes of man, no matter how powerful they think their schemes might be. They were doing the works of God. If you remember in John chapter 6, they said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. They're trying to kill Jesus. The people are going away doing the works of God. But the question that we might ask as we continue further in our text this morning is what exactly were they believing on? Or who exactly were the Jews believing in you see there's something in in verses 12 and 13 there's something that they thought Jesus was coming to be but Jesus will once again by his actions reveal who he truly is take a look down at verses 12 and 13 in our text the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Friends, this is the beginning of Passion Week. In just a few days, Jesus is going to be put on a cross only to raise from the dead and conquer sin and death 
forever. This large crowd is made up of pilgrims. Men and women who have come to celebrate the Passover. Excitement has built. Jesus will once again make a public appearance. He's going to come to Passover. But how do they think he will come? And and church, the reality is this. There are those who think that they know a lot about Jesus. Who he is. What he said. But they do not truly know who he is. That's what's happening here. That's what's happening with the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not misplaced hope. Who they wanted Jesus to be, who they thought Jesus was, he was. But he would not be who they thought he was, how they thought he should be it. Say it that way. Okay? They go, will, he will not be who he, they thought he was, how they thought he should be it. God's ways are different than man's ways. See, the crowds, what the crowds want in this moment is they want another King David. They want a ruler, a physical ruler, to sit on the throne, to demand independence, to win their freedom over the oppression of Roman rule. Hail to the new King David. Hail to our political and military champion. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Even, church, even that term that they use, Hosanna, implies they were looking for the Messiah on their own terms. The word Hosanna means give salvation now. Now. Palm branches are waving. Cloaks, we read in other passages, are being thrown on the ground. There is a scene being made. The king is here. And some of the wording that they use, phrasing that they use, is coming from the book of Psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The king of Israel This is who they deem Jesus to be, but they deem him to be it immediately, right now, physically, a new king for the nation. Their intentions were good, church, but their motivations were off. And while the chief priests and the Pharisees on one side were motivated by their hatred and fear of Jesus and his ministry, you find the people who are following their example on the other side, you find them and their fear and their hatred that they're seeing modeled by their leadership. Their fear and hatred isn't directed towards Jesus. It's directed towards the Roman rule and Roman empire. And what we see as John's gospel progresses is that the religious leaders move further from Jesus while the crowds and the general public actually move closer to Jesus in proximity. Their hope, though sometimes wrongly applied, was that Jesus would fix everything. And he would. Jesus does. Those of us that sit in this room can can tell us that in terms of our salvation and the security of knowing that we're going to spend our lives in eternity with God, Jesus fixes everything in regards to that. But he's not going to do it the way that they think he is. And friends, I want to pause here to say, I had an opportunity to sit in one of the ABFs last Sunday. The teacher did a fabulous job talking about some of the different religious systems and 
heresies that are a danger to Christianity. And I want to say that, that there is real danger in these things because often Jesus is presented as something other than what he actually is, but it's so close it's hard to tell. It's so close it's hard to tell. We have the prosperity gospel. We have all the works-based religious systems out there. We have Jehovah's Witnesses. We have Mormons. The list could go on and on and on. There are other worldviews and systems that make Jesus out to be something other than He is, but it's close enough that it tastes good and it looks good. And there's danger in this. And, and friends, the people, they had missed Jesus. They had thought Jesus was one thing when truly He was something other than what they thought He was. And there's a lesson that coming to define and understand Jesus on our own terms is dangerous. We need to come to know and understand Jesus as He communicates Himself to be in His Word. That is the safest place to come from. And I would challenge you, church, if, if you look at some of these other systems ever and some of these other ways of thinking, you will find that probably everyone, if not everyone, has some other authority outside of the Scriptures. Church, that's what makes this unique and different for us. I will hold this up and say to you that this is our authority. And, and on the truth of this word, God will build His church. He will do the work. And it's through the words of this book and this book alone that we come to know and understand and define who Jesus is. Jesus, He's coming into the city of Jerusalem just as it had been foretold years and years before it happened. And in the Gospels, what we find is we find that Jesus' actions always confirm and add support to His true identity. He is exactly who He claims to be because He acts exactly as the one who He claims to be. Look at verses 14 and 16, who Jesus really is. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This prophecy that we read comes from Zechariah Chapter 9, verse 9, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, friends, is coming in victory. It's called the triumphal entry. He's coming in triumph. But he's coming in humility. He's coming gently. He's coming in submission to the will of his Father for what is yet to come. The ancient plans and the prophecies that came before in the Old Testament were coming to bear. Behold your King. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God to his people. 
He's the image of the invisible God, the preeminent one. In Genesis 49, it said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And we, all, we also hear some phrasing from Psalm 72 in what the people are crying out to Jesus. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And though the king was present and walking in the midst of the people, there was a piece of the king's glory that was kept hidden, that had not yet been revealed and wouldn't be until he was glorified. And friends, it, there's a reality here. Man is unable to stand in the full presence of the glory of God. And we know that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And in that, it was an act of love that he cloaked or hid some of his attributes of deity. Because everywhere in the Bible where we find man confronting God or finding himself in the presence of God, what's the posture that we find himself? I mean, that we fi he finds himself in. He's on his knees. Man would not have been able to walk with Jesus were his full glory on display all the time being fully God. It was an act of love that he veiled some of those. It is also partly due to this reality that some of the disciples who walked with him missed some of the significant events and the significance of certain times of his life. And we can't overlook verse 16. A lot of times, verse 16 in, in a text like this, we just skip over. We overlook, we say, oh, that's just kind of like a, uh, the gospel writer making like an editorial note. We can't do that here. This is a beautiful moment, church. It's a beautiful moment in this text, and it's a pause. John's giving a pause for human reflection. He's catching his breath. He's looking back. So much had happened. And this triumphal entry was such a massive occasion in the ministry of Jesus that it appears that even John himself had not recognized the implications of it until after it was all said and done. There's something special happening here. Let's not miss it, church. We know that John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in these words, God wants us to understand something, and I believe it's something that has to do with our own spiritual growth and development. John shares similar words in chapter 2, verse 22. He says this, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples did what? Remembered. They remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Sometimes... The lessons that God is trying to teach us are best learned in hindsight. And sometimes our love and appreciation for individuals and the lessons they try to teach us through our lifetime only grows after God removes those individuals from our lives. We can't see what they're saying when they're with us. It's almost like we're blind to it, but once they're gone... All of these truths become real and we see, oh my, they were so right. And I missed it for so many years. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
And I believe, church, there's two very important realities related to our spiritual growth and development here in a verse like this and in a verse like in John chapter 2, verse 22. First, it's important for us to take time and to process and reflect and ask this question. What is Jesus teaching me in this season of my life? Uh, Church, I will say there's probably no greater significant question that I could attach to my own spiritual growth and development than that question right there on the screen. If we are continually asking ourselves that question over and over and over again, then we are continually realizing and remembering that God is always working. He's always active. He's always trying to use the things that he brings into our lives to help us to grow in our relationship with him and our relationship with others. What is Jesus teaching me right now in this season? And the second reminder, I think, friends, is also equally as powerful. Here are the disciples. These are men who were walking every day in the presence of Jesus. Many of them believed what he was saying. They believed it with their whole heart. They saw the miracles that he did. They witnessed it. But yet they themselves couldn't see the significance of everything. Why? Because our spiritual growth and development, our sanctification is directed by God. He does it. He does it. We don't always understand what he's teaching us at first. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I need a two-by-four over my head sometimes. Just bang, right there. Then I remember it. Then I understand it. But it could take years. I was in a Sunday school class one time, and a teaching, I actually believe we were teaching through the book of Judges, and a complicated question came up in the class. And I did not have an answer for it. And I remember I had... I had I was really struggling up front. Did you ever have that before as a teacher where you, you have no idea and you start to stumble and struggle and you know your words aren't adequate? And there was an older gentleman in the back and he raised his hand and uh, I said, yes, Roger, please save me. <laughs> he said, you know, he said, Chris, he said, I think that none of us in the room probably have the answer to that question. And I believe that when the Lord needs us to have the answer to that question, we will have it, and we will know it. And I was like, wow, that's really good. I'm going to use that for the rest of the questions today in class. <laughs> Apply it to everything. And if you're coming to Judges today, you might get the same response, so get ready. But I would say that that, that is so true. I mean, a few weeks ago, we went to Haiti for the third time. And, and I can tell you that this time, we came back incredibly different, more transformed than either of the first two times. And we were down there for not even 24 hours. And I can't explain to that how that happened. Sure, we learned some things on our first true trips. God changed us in each of those trips. But on this last trip, something significant took place in our lives. We both can't explain it yet. I haven't had time to sit down and process it even yet in trying to catch our breaths. But, but some of the things, I believe, have to relate to Jesus clearing up some of the reasons for the purposes over the greater journey we've been on in the last six years of our life through this process of international adoption. And we don't always understand God's ways. And we don't always have the answers in the seasons of life that we walk through. 
But I believe what verses 2.22 and verses 12.16 teach us is this. That God is faithful to grow us on His perfect timing. God will do it. And I think this big lesson that's related to our spiritual growth is this. We do not direct our own spiritual growth and development. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now there is obedience, friends. Please don't mishear me. God calls us to be obedient. We are supposed to be engaging in His Word. We are supposed to be participating in prayer. We are supposed to be joining in the fellowship of the saints. These are things that God's people do. And as the fruit of the Spirit grows and we participate in these things, we believe that God's Spirit is working to help us grow according to His perfect time and plan for our lives. And what I love about a verse like verse 16 is I love that even in the inerrant, and holy inspired word of God that the Holy Spirit would allow for us to see glimpses of how spiritual growth really worked in the life of the disciples. Isn't that what's happening to John here? He's looking back and he's reflecting on how he grew during this time. He didn't see these things until after Jesus was glorified. And, and here's a side note for us if we can... Wrap it up and put a bow on this thought. If the disciples missed it, and they were walking with Jesus every day, can we perhaps give ourselves a little bit of grace if we don't get it right all the time either? I I just think it, you know, God does not call for us to be perfect know-it-alls who always do the right thing and make the right choice in every situation. That's why there's grace. That's why there's mercy. And we're recipients of that boundless grace. He calls us to love as we have been loved. That's what He calls us to do. And there's a crowd they've gathered here. At the, the same crowd that came for the resurrection of Lazarus is back now. And, and perhaps they're anticipating another miracle. Okay, He raised Lazarus from the dead. What's He going to follow that up with? Let's wait and see. Verses 17 to 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Now I would pause and say this, church, if there was ever a time in Jesus' earthly ministry for him to amass for himself a following, a rebellion, a revolt, and overthrow the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Now is the time. The crowd, he has the crowds in the lap of his hands. They are ready to follow him. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. They've seen his power. If this was Jesus' motivation and intention in our text in the book of John, now's the time. Strike while the iron's hot. If there was any time for him to bury the comedy of errors that was the Jewish religious establishment, this was now. They've gathered, uh, seen Jesus bring a dead man back to life. He could do something right now that would shake the very core of Jerusalem. With all the pilgrims who have gathered, no doubt he would have had an army of protesters. And while his popularity among the people had grown, the political stability of the nation was growing weaker. Because if you remember, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders, their job, according to the Roman Empire, was to keep their people, what? Under control. 
As long as your people behave and don't create a ruckus and don't rebel and revolt, we'll leave you alone pretty much. But Jesus' ministry is stirring things up. And the question as they gather has to be, how are they going to execute the edict that Caiaphas gave in John chapter 11? How are they going to put Jesus to death? Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And can't you see in the text in these moments how these men are desperately clinging to their fragile empire. Their empire is crumbling around them and they're desperately holding on to it. Needing to feel like they have to do something to take care of Jesus. Seemed like every moment that Jesus was alive was an opportunity for him to gain more of a following. And their words, like Caiaphas's words in John 11, are even uh, more of an exaggeration and a hyperbole. Sorry, hyperbole. They're, they're wonderfully ironic, are they not? I think there's two ironies here. Take a look again at verse 19. Two ironies, I believe, in this two-sentence quote from the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The first irony is this. Their quote, You see that you are gaining nothing. Some irony in there you catch? Oh, if they would have realized that that was the very goal. Give it all up and gain Christ. Right? Isn't this what Paul communicated and understood in Philippians? Indeed, I count everything as loss. You're gaining nothing. Good. We're exactly where we should be and need to be. Count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Oh, if that were really the truth, if they truly were gaining nothing. But we know in their minds they were trying to hold on to something that was temporal, that was fading quickly. The second irony is found in the second line. Look at what they say. The whole world is going after him. And the church said, Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's what perhaps we should have expected to happen because it tells us in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And we see a world responding to that great love of Jesus. The whole world is going after Him. Great. Great. And all of this because the plans of God are prevailing, friends, in this text, over and over again, over the wiles and the schemes of man. And indeed, the reach of Jesus' ministry was beginning to extend far beyond the walls of Jerusalem, even further beyond the nation of Israel itself. The scope of Jesus' ministry was the salvation of the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And lo and behold, it's a beautiful thing. I'll let you look ahead one time. If you peek ahead to verse 20, 
there's some curious guests who've come to the feast. Anybody see who those curious guests are? The Greeks. Evidence, church. Evidence that the world is responding to the ministry of Jesus. It's amazing. Even amidst all of the turmoil that Jesus was put through, all of the pressure that the religious establishment put on him that he couldn't even make himself seen in public. He had to hide himself, remove himself from their presence over and over and over again in spite the deck being stacked against him in so many ways. His ministry is growing and its influence is spreading beyond the city walls of Jerusalem, beyond the nation of Israel, into the very world in which He came to save. And as we sit here today, I would reflect, in our congregation, we probably have a number of nations represented here in our backgrounds, in our ancestry, in our history. And isn't that one of the beautiful realities of the church? Evidence that what God intended to happen in the ministry of Jesus truly continues to happen today. For God so loved the world. And it's the world that today can continue to hear His gospel and come to Him for salvation. So how might our lives look in light of these realities? And just four questions today, and then our team is going to come and close us with a, a final song this morning. I'll start with this. As you sit here today, what is Jesus teaching you right now in your life? In the circumstances and the situations and the people that He's directed into your pathways? And friends, I'll tell you an easy way to answer this question for me. I often start with the most difficult things, and there's been a lot of them right now. And so I say, Lord, what are you teaching me right now? And somebody, say, be care- somebody told me one time, be careful about praying to the Lord for patience. You never know what He might bring. Be careful about praying to the Lord for spiritual growth, for any of those things. Lord is going to use difficult things in our life to help teach us and help us grow. And so, who are those people? What are those circumstances or situations in your life right now that are difficult that God wants to use to help you grow? What is Jesus teaching you through those right now? But then I'd also ask this question. Who has Jesus used in your life that He's directed into your pathway that has helped you grow. Give Him thanks for that person this week or those people this week because that's remembering the gifts that God gives us. He gives us beautiful gifts. And people are some of the most precious gifts that Jesus gives us. And so often we miss that. We miss the beauty of relationship and how the gift of relating is such a beautiful thing because God uses people to help us grow and we should be thankful even for the difficult people because sometimes in my life, they're the ones that have had the greatest influence. Those difficult people. So who do you need to be thankful for this week? Even list the difficult ones. Third, who might Jesus be calling you to help grow even today? And as you sit here today, I, I will promise you that Maybe, maybe you've overlooked them. I know I've overlooked some in my life from time to time. For every, No matter how old you are, how young you are, it doesn't matter. Jesus has placed people into your life that He intends for you to help grow. He wants to use you to help these individuals grow. Who are those people? Who's next in your field of ministry or your field of work that you need to be training and investing in and helping to grow and disciple? 
And then finally this. How might Jesus use you to help somebody this week grow in a greater love for Him and a greater love for those He has placed in their pathways? For every one of us as we sit here, there's very tangible things that we can do this week in love for someone else to help them grow. I've experienced it from all of you in this season of our lives. You have helped us grow. You have helped us walk through this because you have been a source of encouragement and prayer and enrichment in this season of our lives. But there are people uh, as well uh, that other people other than me that Jesus might be intending for you to help grow this week. Search them out. Figure out a way to love them. And as you do, our team's going to come and we're going to close in a final song this morning.